0: Governance, to me, is the systems of rules which make things happen and that people make up those rules. Sometimes we forget that and those rules can change.
1: Are you interested in solving challenges through service design? What do you think about local storytelling and knowledge? How can we be more involved in governance? Stay tuned for answers from Talia Radiviel.
0: What is the future
1: for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Talia Radiviel, the Head of Research and Capability at Today. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities service design, governance made up of people, design as creative problem solving, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Dr. Talia Radibiel is a researcher, designer, and educator specializing in design research, service design, and systemic design. Over the past 15 years, she has worked in Australia and the US, helping organizations better deliver policy, programs, and services, Largely with a focus on at-risk communities, her work has spanned sectors and industries ranging from Fortune 500 and government to NGOs and the community sector. She is currently head of research and capability at Today, a service transformation agency in Melbourne, Australia. And with that, Dahlia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your appearance on the podcast. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you?
0: That's a really interesting question because cities are as different in some ways as the many people who live in them. I lived in New York for a long time with a city of eight, eight and a half million people. And I think there's eight and a half million versions of that city, depending on everyone's experience of them. I have a social research training. So I think I often think about experiences and how people might interpret something from their own experience. That said, though, cities are systems comprising many different kinds of systems, like social, cultural, technical, environmental, all the things, of course, political, economic and systems have shared characteristics as well. So there might be certain kinds of cities that are more similar to each other than other kinds of cities, for example. So that's me stepping around your question, being like there's so many different ways to answer it. I think when I think about the future of cities, I think a lot about governance, probably because I've been As a consultant working with governments for quite a while in different kinds of ways and done a lot of sort of research and design around sort of public policy, public institutions, social service delivery. So governance is often in my mind. And governance dictates infrastructure and how equity unfolds or doesn't, how future oriented we might be, creating spaces for people's stories and how we might invest in culture. I don't know if I'm talking about the future of cities there, but just when I think about trends in governance and where we are, that's what's top of mind for me. In some ways it's pulling together like systems and experiences through that lens of governance. And when I think of trends, the one that always comes to mind is just that trend about more and more people are living in cities and that Australia's not a big country. But I think it's something like, I was looking it up, like 72% of Australians live in cities and it's only a few cities as well it's not a series of eight small cities so it makes me think about when you take a certain approach to managing a big city in Australia you're actually influencing a country to some extent and it can have a national impact so I think about that in terms of a local context here and the kind of city systems that we have in Australia.
1: So you said that looking at Australia we have a few big cities. So if you influence a city, you basically influence the country itself.
0: Potentially, in terms of if we don't plan for housing, if we don't put an equity lens on our kind of social infrastructure and public policy, the ripple effect is enormous. It affects a lot of people. And I think when those things happen at scale then there's a lot of consequences that ripple out and affect a large population and of course we have national elections and things like that. I haven't really thought about this but perhaps it's something unique to how Australia has been colonized and planted itself its populations along the eastern seaboard. It's a unique characteristic of our country.
1: I'm asking this because I have been thinking about a lot obviously what can be the future of the city or the future of the cities. And sometimes in conversations come up the idea that maybe cities will take the place of countries, because cities are the things managing people, managing the resources. Do you think that there will be a place, a space, a time when
0: city-states are the governing force instead of countries? When I think about how nation-states define themselves and borders and policy around borders, I think that would get very complicated very fast seeing as how hard that was at a state level during the pandemic. But I think that the proposition is really interesting and just thinking about the constant, again, in Australia tension between state governments and federal government and funding and how things unfold and that there tends to be this pattern of If it's all Labor, state governments, it'll be a federal, liberal government and vice versa. So this is antagonism and counterbalancing that happens, which is quite interesting. That's talking about states and not cities. I do think that it's really important to plan at a local level and stimulate local economies. Not to say that we should be concentrating all of our resources into big metropolitan centers, but there's a lot of reasons why people want to live in regional areas and we have sort of agriculture and all kinds of industries and people's sense of what home is to them and they should be entitled to live wherever they would like, whichever background they are and whatever they do in their lives. And people living in regional areas are struggling a lot with the poor infrastructure and climate change is a huge one as well. I'm wondering how to answer your question because I think cities do have a force and a magnetism and there's like a Again, from having lived in New York for quite a long time, there is something special about kind of the pinging of like networks and a dynamism, which is really interesting. But it shouldn't be at the expense of regional areas as well that often suffer, I think, with all the focus on cities. And then we see the consequences of that when the cities are blind to regional needs and you end up with consequences like Brexit when there's been too much navel-gazing at like a large urban level on metropolitan level and not understood the perspectives of people who are outside. And there's just too much division, I think, and lack of cohesion, which can also be a problem.
1: Based on your answer, I think that you differentiate between, for example, if you talk about in the Australian context, between the capital cities, so Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and regional cities like Ballarat or Bendigo, do you differentiate between these two types
0: of habitats? I think we need to because there are things that are different that happen at scale, and like a lot more resources are available in the capital cities. Voting patterns might be different. To your early question, what does the future of cities mean to you? And all I could really say is, but which cities do you mean? <laughs> because I guess I'm also thinking about cities versus towns versus villages. There's different scales of people living together and perhaps when I was talking about regional areas, I'm not sure how that probably would be defined, like somewhere like Geelong. I don't know what that is technically classified as these days. I should say for context for the podcast, I have been living out of Australia a long time and I'm just getting my feet back onto what Australia is like now and how things have changed, what things are termed, because a lot has evolved since I was away. So I might refer to things incorrectly or have an outdated perspective of some things about Australia. So my apologies if that's the case. But I think there are so many differences in terms of needs and resources and risk even. Again, just thinking about climate change and how it impacts metropolitan cities differently to regional areas and what the impact is and Aging populations, birth rates, talking about local economy again, job opportunities. It's a lot to consider when comparing them. Other conversations lead to the
1: idea that although people live in regional towns or regional centers, they want to experience the urban experience. They want to live in the city while living in the regional town. That's why there's a question for me whether you differentiate between these two. But you mm. explained it very well that there are different needs, resources and risks involved with the two different types. So,
0: and I couldn't make an assumption know? about what people want in those areas because I haven't asked them. <laughs> <I fell> <laughs>
1: <up>. <laughs> what is governance for you? How do you describe governance?
0: Governance to me is the systems of rules which make things happen and that people make up those rules. Sometimes we forget that and those rules can change. For me, these things are enshrined in like constitutions and in sort of public policy. We're talking about sort of public governance. And then it's a matter of a whole bunch of public servants to be turning those policies into programs and services and ensuring compliance. And ideally there are feedback loops to work out whether those programs and policies are actually fit for purpose. That bit doesn't always really happen that well. (laughs) But it's a human system like of making this entire kind of governance, infrastructure, or maybe even architecture is a better word. And in public policy, at least, the intention is you would hope that it's some balance of decisions being made for the public good. It depends, of course, what system of governance we're talking about, whether it's like liberal democracy or social welfare state or some combination of those things or something completely different, of course, whether it's an autocratic country. But at least in our context, I would hope it's some balance of the public good and also what is like sustainable and viable economically, and also with observation of where our climate is and what we need as part of the sustainable and viable, it's economic and environmental picture.
1: Somehow I get picture that when people think about governance, they don't think about that people are doing the governance or people are involved in the governance. Please tell us about how this understanding for you about governance, that people are doing it, people are making up the rules. It's a system of man-made rules. How this came to life? How do you
0: experience it in real life and in your work? Happy to answer that one. Having worked in service design for quite a number of years and with a focus on social service delivery in particular, you become very aware of the peopleness of these systems. The people who are trying to form programs and services to deliver on policy. And then you have all of these people who cascade down from that. If you think about it as a hierarchy where you have policymakers up the top, well, it doesn't really matter which end they're at, but they're at one level. And the next level is people who are in charge of program design of some sort. And then there are like operational managers who try and make that all happen on the ground. And then you'll have people, this is very generalizing, but. People who will be the face of the service. Maybe they're working at a Centrelink or they're answering a phone or they're creating interactions online through design, but they're providing that service or program. And maybe there are also delivery partners. It might be nonprofits or health organizations or whatever it might be who are also making the service run. And then you also have the people who are using the service on the other side. When you're working in service design and recognizing that this is all systemic, and you have a client who's we need to design a new service or our service is broken somehow. We need to make it better for these reasons. It's a matter of mapping out how this service system is currently working and not working. So you don't want to break something that's working quite nicely. But usually that process of mapping, especially when I was working in New York, when I was doing sort of city stuff, it's a very complex, very service-rich environment. So I did a lot, for example, in homelessness in New York City over many years. And it might be up to five agencies who are supporting a single family experiencing homelessness, and they don't often get in a room together. The decision makers don't often get in a room together. They might not have mapped how their services do and don't interact with one another. You can imagine just mapping out that current state of literally what is the journey of a family from the time they turn up to the centre to be like, hey, I need help with housing, through to arriving eventually in a shelter to eventually finding permanent housing. There's a whole bunch of bits of the system and systems I'll be interacting with with different agencies or even within one agency, different kinds of people. There's like technological systems that people are interacting with. And in some ways, I feel like a lot of it's just about how information needs to be passed over and shared. And then it's clear and understood from both the service provision and service use ends. We made all this up at some point, but probably not very thoughtfully, which is why it's so complicated and why there is overlapping parts and why there are gaps in parts as well. And people fall through those cracks or get confused by getting four different kinds of messages, and then they don't know who to turn to. As you can imagine, it can be incredibly stressful and even triggering, traumatizing, depending on what your circumstances are. To your question of how does the peopleness of all this show up, it means that you can't map this out without speaking to all the people who are, literally all the people, but speaking to people who are providing and also using the service to understand how is it's being provided, how is it being experienced, and what are the opportunities for design intervention. And then you need to, again, lean on all of these people and involve them in the design process to, like, co-design and prototype, work out what these systemic interventions might be, and then to be, like, prototyping, iterating, prototyping, iterating, and eventually piloting, and then implementing at scale as well. As a consultant, you can't possibly know how to do that because... We don't have the domain knowledge, obviously, but there's also just quirks and characteristics and you need to understand. A lot of it's about with design interventions, like what are the tools or platforms or the right information to be in the right hands to trigger a mindset change or behavior change to make things easier for people or to be more supportive or less re-traumatizing or to create an efficiency, like there's a lot of those considerations. You're really trying to make it more supportive and more informative for everyone and to decrease all the noise for everyone involved when you're looking for those design interventions it's often about trying to find because these sorts of systems are generally broken in parts but people have their little hacks and workarounds their little seeds of design ideas usually you're trying to find out where are people doing things well and would that work at scale it's a people innovation So you're finding that thing and then you want to test that out and see if that works more broadly and then if you do, then you start changing those behaviors and mindsets and maybe I think in a best outcome, whilst in something like service design and designing systemically, you might literally be designing a poster that would appear in a shelter and a new drop-down menu in the case management system that tracks people better as they're moving through shelters. And it might be a certain kind of training. But what you're really hoping that ladders up to is actually just a new mental model for the system and how it works that is coherent And all these little interventions sit in. That's how things begin to evolve. There's like a shared understanding of what it's all trying to do and what all these interventions are in aid of. And that's a shared understanding between people providing and using the service. There's no reason why it has to be like a secret thing that people on the government side know about and other people don't. I know I said a lot of stuff and heavily referenced the design process, which I don't know how clear that is. But as I said earlier, it's a system of people. So you're designing with and for those people so that It's easier to use and provide that service and then it changes. That's how sort of governance works, in my mind anyway, how it can transform when you're delivering policy. There were
1: so many reassuring things you just said, that it's (laughs) policy not just for people, but with people, that there are people involved. And although it's a very complex thing, we need to go through the talking to each other and then we can share the information and then we can create new mental models for how we operate cities.
0: That's reassuring, but I will say people are people, so... Part of a job like mine is there is sometimes tension between stakeholders and as a designer, you being a good facilitator is really important because you need to work out like what that tension is about and how to get people collaborating. That's really essential and the designing with isn't always easy. It's more expensive if you're including service users in the co-design process. It takes a lot of safety and care planning, which is also why it's expensive. So, people can feel equipped, that so they can contribute, and that so they feel like it's a valuable and useful process to them and not a waste of time and certainly not harming them in any kind of way. People are complicated. <laughs> and so, when you bowl them in something, your work is really complicated. But the bigger ambition should always be there. And I will say as well that this is a growing trend common in the UK, increasingly in the US, certainly Australia following the UK, to approaching design in government in these sorts of ways. Co-design has been quite a buzzword for a while. In some ways it's used, sometimes it's more superficial. The recognition that we've had a few sort of in royal commissions in Australia, there's one into mental health reform in Victoria, where I'm from, and that royal commission into mental health reform, a third of them called for co-design to be part of the process. You can't redesign the mental health system without including people who have lived experience of the mental health system. That's becoming a lot more common. The question is always like, how well is that understood and what it means to undertake it? Are we receiving requests for proposals that have an appropriate budget for that kind of work? There's all of the kind of machinations of like project operations about being able to do that work well with that level of integrity that we desire. That's always a challenge, but we hope that in the work we do There's always a bit of capability building or awareness building about what it really means to do this work well. And can we actually solve that problem with the time and money that we've been allocated or not? And to reconsider what we can do properly with that money. There's a whole art to it. I didn't want to rain on your parade with feeling reassured, but there's a lot of complexity when it comes to actually doing this work in practice.
1: The reassurance is still there because we can't manage what we don't know. At least you know that it's a very complex system. So that's the first step, I think, towards solving complex problems, that it's a part of a complex system. But you mentioned something that designers are or need to be good facilitators. With that, I would like to understand what is design for you? What does design mean to you? And what are
0: designers? Who are designers? I know when I tell people I work in service design or I work in design and people think that's like fashion (laughs) or urban design or landscape design. The way I think about design, this is not novel to me, this is newish, but over the last maybe 15 years or so, thinking about design as a creative problem-solving process in which conducting research in order to understand what needs and behaviours are of a current state of something, whether it's a product or a service or something else, and then using an iterative process where you're designing just a prototype of something, testing it, doing that a few cycles of that before it being implemented. Like that to me is the design process. And you could use that from anything from strategic design. There's another dimension to this I haven't mentioned, but I think at least in the way that we, saying we broadly, it's a very big we, but in this kind of way of thinking about design, it's often very participatory, very collaborative. The outputs are usually very visible or tangible in some kind of ways. Even if it's a strategy, it's very grounded in things. It's not like you're producing a big, long 10,000-word report. You're not producing an academic paper. Like any research you undertake, applied research is always an aid of creating evidence to drive a design brief. So that's always the outcome. And the design might be something like an organizational strategy or working with an organization to design a lived experience framework you'll always include the people who will be using the thing to work out how to make it and try and test parts of it before handing it over. But then it can also be things like designing a campaign or the content strategy or a digital thing or, I don't do this, but industrial design. There's all these different disciplines that can be using this process and already have been for a long time. It's come out of sort of human-computer interaction world and it brings of like Northern European design practice as well as come together had a big moment called design thinking that the management consulting world and governments picked up very enthusiastically but now has been somewhat dropped. But it was a whole kind of moment around trying to think a bit differently in these kind of large institutions. And I would say broadly, what I've been describing is human-centered design is like the biggest bucket and service design is one type of practice within human-centered design. Then let's come back to the future of cities. You have been touching upon a few...
1: Hopes and opportunities. But first, let's discuss what are your three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities?
0: There's a few. To come back to governance, because we've been talking about that for a little while, this isn't true in every city, but just thinking more locally, like I worry about the lack of vision and election cycles and sensitivity to media and always concerned with how things appear visibly. And there are some things like I wonder, like why don't we have a good bike share system in Melbourne? Why is there no fast rail connecting the eastern Seaboard? Everyone seems to desire it, but no one wants to pay for it. It's just about how we think about value and its risk to foot the bill for something of great public value that might not pay off economically immediately. Or in the complex systems in which we live, maybe it's harder to calculate those things. I don't know. So anyway, I worry about limp approaches to governance at the moment. They <laughs> feel very bureaucratic and very heavy and slow. That's one. Another area I worry about, it relates to the first, but that's equity. And there are some really alarming trends at the moment around the cost of living, especially around housing. It's no secret anymore that if you can give someone stable housing, so many aspects of their lives improve. They're less dependent on those various social welfare systems as well. Mental health improves like, There's so much. And here we are in like a pretty wealthy country and we can't solve this problem. We have this sprawl that doesn't have proper access to public transport, under-resourced regional areas. So there's just so much happening. And this strata that I left in 2009 feels quite different to now. It feels like the systems we could depend on aren't serving us very well anymore. And there's a lot of anxiety about that. Part of these global phenomena, of course, it's pandemic, it's all kinds of things, but our safety nets have got lots of holes in them. And maybe they were just weak nets before. Holes that people are actively falling through, and that's really concerning. I also feel like we can't scramble fast enough to fix all of this right now. So, equity is a big one, and with that comes just people living in really dreadful circumstances, and they should not have to. We shouldn't be a country where you work full time and you can't afford to find yourself stable housing on your income. Another area sort of future proofing and adaptability in the face of climate change and our investment in regenerative systems? Are we really taking seriously things we're beginning to learn about, tapping into older wisdoms, indigenous knowledge? There's been some great pilots around fire prevention and management. Could we scale those things? Are we learning fast enough? The CSIRO had been gutted in the past. Our kind of knowledge institutions have deteriorated so much and our public media, which counter private media, has also been so defunded that I just worry about our ability to have the innovative spark and draw upon knowledge which surely exists amongst us and around the world, especially in the face of climate change because vast communities are vulnerable. And even I think it caught the media a month or two ago, but just how much hotter it is in Western Sydney than it is in the expensive northern shores, just things like that. And again, that comes down to equity and governance. And then having lived in New York during Hurricane Sandy and not being able to go home for six weeks because our basement was flooded and the electrics and boiler were destroyed. Like that's New York City of all places. It's not that far away. And there's already plenty of cities around the world that are hugely impacted by climate change and we've had a luxury of clean air and water for the most part in Australia. But there's a lot of stuff waiting for us and people in regional areas know this very well. And then the last one is kind of a funny one that came to mind when I just stopped thinking about it so technically. And then I was like, I'm worried about cities becoming very bland. Just thinking about the tides of gentrification and commercialization and generalisation when chain stores take over, city hubs, through the pandemic and other reasons, like local businesses shut down because they couldn't operate anymore or music venues couldn't afford to stay open and councils can't afford to fund things at a local level that supports local business vitality and things like that. And one of the examples... The, in Sydney, I'm not sure if of you're aware of this one, but there were lockout laws in Sydney in the mid teens or so, for another five years or so, where the city was trying to combat drunken behaviour on the streets. It was getting kind of lots of brawls and quite dangerous and things like that. And so they thought what they'd do instead was like shut down venues earlier or maybe you could be locked in and it was a nightclub and stay much later. I can't quite remember how it worked. And so they're trying to solve that problem by basically like just shutting down the city's music scene (laughs) instead of investing in proper infrastructure around transport, I don't know, other stuff around social policing or something around drinking, whatever the reasons were. But that really gutted Sydney's music scene. And now you look at where it currently is compared to Melbourne where that didn't happen. And there's lots of different reasons why our music scenes are different. And music's very important to me, which is why I'm referencing it so much. But that's a huge loss. And I wonder... What gives a city an identity and a vitality and a dynamism that's something really unique and special and that thing has to be nurtured and I think through the pandemic some of those things haven't been nurtured and I just worry about cities all starting to look like one another. If you go to Melbourne and you go to Sydney and you go to London, there's a bit of a samey sameness with the cafes and everyone's eating tacos, everyone's eating brisket and everyone's eating pizza and then there's always going to be like this Japanese restaurant. I think in the way that lots of people are migrating into cities, I wonder if there's a loss of something that feels more hyper-local about them. I don't know. I think there's many factors at play in my blandness sphere. Maybe it's untrue. It could also be my state of mind. But I hope that there's something special that needs to be nurtured in cities and it's people and local businesses and artists and creatives and creative economies really need stimulation and support. And often they the ones that when times are tight get it the least and are hit the hardest and we've certainly seen that, especially in Melbourne in the last few years. I assume that nurturing
1: this special local character is an opportunity for cities to focus on their future. What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you?
0: My thought do relate to the blandness and things that I don't see being done that I find really interesting. Like I think creating platforms and opportunities for local stories and storytelling narratives is so important and in Australia, like we've just come through invasion day, there's really contested narratives, like a dominant narrative that should is fully being contested. And in you know, increasingly we're seeing more acknowledgement of First Nations history and that very long narrative history. But there's also you know, I grew up in the eighties and we used to really champion our diversity and we used to have a thing called multicultural policy, which was defunded and disabled by the mid-90s. There was a point at which we're really proud of our history of migration, the diversity and everything that brought, and my family's part of that history. I think in this sort of era of increasing political polarisation, there's so many walls between us. And not saying cities can solve all these problems. Again, cities are complex systems. There's a lot of things to tinker with and levers you can pull. But I think that finding ways for people to find each other's common humanity or shared experience is really important. And cities can certainly play a role in doing that in terms of the programming they have about who are the faces of government, who owns the businesses in the street, who feels welcome. People should feel safe and because of their background and who they are, there is safety in being that person. What you're born shouldn't hold you back. I think that's a really interesting opportunity, which is a big argument for more funding and more investment (laughs) in people who are creative practitioners and people who are advocates in communities and also all kinds of communities, whether it's around people who are neurodivergent and people with different kinds of disability. These are all stories that don't get included very often in our mainstream narratives, so I think there's something to consider there. Related to that, I've already referenced this, I don't know a lot about this and what activities are happening on the ground. I know I'm definitely not like the first person to think of this because there's a lot of study and efforts and Fanny, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but I am very interested in like local wisdoms and sort of old forms of knowledge, like indigenous knowledge. Can we be thinking about cities in really different ways? Like even the idea that in Melbourne, we still think we have four seasons, which has never worked. <laughs> there should be six. There's all different kinds of ways of thinking about our environment and do see things like partnerships with Indigenous rangers. I'm also thinking about the roles of our sort of seniors, our sort of elderly people and what they know and understand and nurturing that and that having a place as well. Because in our era of TikTok history, there's a long history to understand and there are patterns. I don't know the place of that knowledge or how it works, what it means, but I feel like it's such a missing piece. And we talk about valuing having a mentor or how close you were to your grandmother and all those sorts of things. I think there's an inherent human desire to reach for something that's bigger and deeper, that has more time knowing than you've had time knowing. I wonder at a city level what it would mean to nurture that in different kinds of ways. I don't have answers to that. This is just me groping around and feeling like what I think is really interesting because it hasn't been part of our sort of dominant way of running cities. I think another opportunity which is much more tangible than the other things I've said I think it's about policy makers that so are going back to governance, but policy who are change makers and visionaries or people just public servants who are empowered to make decisions who are, again, like change makers and visionaries. Because it's not easy to work in a bureaucracy and people are drawn there, I think, often because they do want to make some kind of change. Like I was referencing the mental health reform work in Victoria. There's understanding that people with experience should be involved in the public service when it comes to redesigning how the public service works in certain ways. So I think there is a capacity and a lot of opportunity to be rethinking what it means to be qualified for a job and what experience is important versus not important and to be rethinking power sharing and that these voices and these experiences are really valuable when it comes to thinking about how to implement policy, but previously they had no space or were silenced or spoken for. So I think there's something really interesting about including people on the street, so to speak, more actively in that role of governance and implementing policy through programs and services as well. So I think that's really interesting. Another opportunity I think I've already spoken about, so I won't go on about it. There's something very important and it probably speaks to most of the other things I've just said, but stimulating local economies is really important and especially in regional areas. And Thinking through reading and conversations I've had, like Eric Kleinenberg, who's a sociologist and has done a lot of his American studies in America around heat waves and communities impacted by climate. But his takeaway, and he's not the only one, is that sort of one of the best things you can do for climate preparedness or to manage risk in a community is to have that community resilience and cohesion already there. Obviously, yes, we should be decreasing our climate footprints, so and we might need seawalls, or we might need to think about how we do backburning and all that kind of stuff as well. But In terms of preparedness and then managing if there has been a disaster, there needs to be that inherent resilience within a community in terms of its social ties, its skills, its knowledge, its local economy, diversity of ages, sub ties with each other. The whole social infrastructure has to be healthy in order for that. So I think that's really important as well. I could ask you
1: for hours about equity (laughs) and local (laughs) wisdom and resilience, especially that you've lived through the Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. Andy's Katrina was in New Orleans. But I want to be respectful of your time. So we are getting to the end of the conversation. What is your role in establishing the future of cities?
0: I think I've been thinking about cities for longer than I've realized. Like when I look back over my studies back in when I was doing my PhD, which was public policy oriented and public space oriented through my various roles since, I've been thinking about how cities run and wondering how that can be changed for the public good and climate more recently. Like as a social researcher, as a design researcher, as a service designer, like there's all these different hats I've worn, which to me feel quite consistent. For a practice-based answer, I think it's through the design practices I'm a part of, which largely these days is about service design and working with teams of designers and in an organization that is a purpose-driven organization that I have a very strong values alignment with. It's about understanding and connecting with people who run and live in cities and then having a process in order to I guess to improve ways which people can have meaningful, healthy and safe lives. These cities need to run equitably, safely, inclusively. And so my practice is about all those (laughs) E's that I just rattled off, ensuring that systems are set up to facilitate those sorts of experiences. And it is both for the people who are making the cities run and people who are living in the cities. Our role is somewhere in the middle, trying to make the system work in an optimal way for everyone involved, but also for the climate.
1: Which sounds amazing. And thank you so much for your (laughs) work because we really need this complex, holistic thinking about the city. Thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your answers.
0: Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? A request of the audience? I don't know who the audience is. Again, I have my social researcher head. So I'm like, but who are they? What do I ask them? (laughs) If it's a request to do something that might have a positive impact in the city, I would say connect with a neighbour, do something in your street or advocate for something that needs changing at a local level. I think it's important to know the village around you. I think during COVID people started discovering that they could live in little villages and some of those have stayed since lockdowns eased and some have not. But there's something very special, again, in terms of developing resilience, that sense that oh, okay, like I can know that neighbor and I know that person at the coffee shop and I know that older person who needs a hand with that thing sometimes and I can water that person's plants and their dog. Those things are so valuable. Like we know so much now about social isolation and there's so much research coming out now about the health impact of that being higher than, what was the comparison? This was in America anyway, like heart disease or diabetes, the health impacts of social isolation are enormous. As a person who isn't actively working in this space the way that I am and my colleagues are, but maybe there's some day-to-day stuff that are important because generally it makes you feel good and it makes the other person feel good too, which is nice.
1: Thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear from Talia her description of design as a creative problem-solving approach through applied research not to mention her advocacy of people making up governance. Alison Scotland talked about similar aspects in episode 192. You can find out more about Dahlia online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Talia's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in.
0: What is the Future for Cities podcast?